Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Coming up. Work stress will make you sick at the same training load that you would have been fine with without the work stress. In the period after a marathon, you are in an inflammatory state. Those who are the least fit are four times more likely to end up in hospital with COVID than those in, in the fittest group. Well, it's just on a year since the arrival of this incredible stage of the world history has uh, hit us in terms of COVID and pandemics. And uh, I think it was uh, probably March or February, March last year when we did one of our first podcasts on the COVID pandemic. And uh, obviously in that time, as you can imagine, it was a it might have been a miserable time for the rest of the world and for most of the world, but I think for research scientists, I'd imagine it was probably a time when they were looking forward to doing many different experiments and research projects and all sorts of things. And one of the things we're going to be looking at today is a little bit about some of the research that's been done around COVID and with specific reference to obviously our sporting people, whether they are professional or non-professionals, and also the wider effects of immunity on the body and how the body responds whether you're fit or not fit and um, whether you're less likely to get a more serious case of COVID or least likely to get a more serious case of COVID. So as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, Ross, I mean, you, 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 you said you had a stat, but there, there were literally thousands of COVID studies done since COVID hit a year and a bit ago. Oh, you're, an, you're two orders of magnitude low there. I remember seeing a tweet and it was literally in the mid 100,000 range. Oh. Even in the first couple of months, I remember the number of studies that were going into preprint, which is like an academic thing that's growing, where you've submitted your paper for review to go to a scientific journal, but then you, you can publish it before mm. it's been published, <laughs> effectively, mm. which causes a lot of issues because the whole peer review process is meant to provide some sort of quality control and rigor, and people were seeing all these preprints and I reckon a lot of them ended up either massively changed or outright rejected but it's probably getting up to close to a million now sure. and most of them are probably nonsense rubbish studies <laughs> but the good ones there are thousands and thousands and tens hundreds of thousands of them and so I don't think I mean we said this when we did that podcast last year I don't think the world has ever learned so much about one thing so quickly mm. and uh, and and badly in some instances mm. but here we are more knowledgeable than we were, but still not um, not perfectly knowledgeable. Just as an aside, I mean, you, you obviously look at studies yourself a lot and in your work. When people say things like peer review, all that sort of thing, when when you can you look at a study and say that has got gravitas and we can take it seriously? In theory, you should always read the study and then apply logic and sound background context knowledge to it. Because sometimes a study published in a really top quality journal is still nonsense. 
how, how does that happen, though? Surely a, a quality journal, like I follow, follow the British Medical Journal, mm. and they obviously have editors in there making sure that whatever they publish is, is, is done well. Well, a couple of things. Sometimes the, sometimes the data is not uh, robust, and there have mm. been cases where papers have been retracted because they have recognized after the fact that there's something wrong in the data. Sometimes it's fraudulent, other times it's just accidental. But I think the main thing driving it, especially in COVID, is that you must understand that these journals are not there purely for the sake of knowledge. They're still businesses. Mm. And so there is a degree of competition between them for readership. They're competing for share of eyeballs and thus wallets. (laughs) And so an editor who can publish an attractive study on a controversial topic, one that maybe goes a little bit against the grain and will start a conversation and will be newsworthy and media worthy, is more inclined to accept a paper with errors and limitations in it. Mm. So that's not, look, there's no perfect study. So anything, whether it's in my field or in oncology, whatever, will always have limitations because you can never do something absolutely perfectly. But as long as those are disclosed. And the, the, the problem with the COVID stuff is that the study designs were often rushed and imperfect. Those limitations weren't always disclosed, but because people were fighting so hard to be heard among the noise, mm. they were willing to maybe sidestep or look uh, look past some of those issues. Mm. And so that's the problem. I and mean, it's human nature will affect everything, not just, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the world of peer review is not immune to human nature. And then the other thing is mates publish for mates. Mm. So when I submit a paper, <laughs> you you have an opportunity to suggest reviewers. Mm. Like no one no one suggests a reviewer who they know mm. is going to be antagonistic. <laughs> no. And then if you are if you're tight and friendly with the editor, then you also have a little bit more favor and so on. So it's not a perfect. It's a good system. So it's, it's not, not ideal when uh, people's lives and some of the um, government. I suppose government also look at these sort of research studies and they make decisions based on the latest research. Because as we always say in this podcast, we like to believe that everything that we say in this podcast is based on good, scientific, robust research. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to sit here and go all scorched earth now on the <laughs> world of published research because mm. it is it is a good system. It's just not a perfect system. Yeah. Because the people are conflicted, mm. not necessarily maliciously, maliciously, sorry, but because that's what humans are. Yeah. And so yeah. you'll get even these these organizations that have been set up to advise governments on COVID response and lockdown. When should it be released? How should vaccines be done? They are subject to similar conflicts like any other business. Mm. <laughs> exactly. They're not they shouldn't be in the business of profit. That would be unethical. But mm. there are still conflicts. So yeah. that's why people have to be discerning and a little bit always skeptical, but just understand like you have to get mm. your data from only credible mm. sources mm. and then verify. Mm. Mm. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of our discussion today, we also have a little bit of a shout out to some of our new uh, Patreon uh, supporters who over the last week uh, we've had quite a few additional supporters and a couple of them are quite close to me, Ross, from what you have picked up on our Patreon page. Indeed, yes. A few <laughs> a few family members of one of the hosts. None of my family are patrons. I need to have no, a word. I'm, I'm leading that you are, you leading are. that competition. Yes, as you know, Patreon is where you can go on and pledge a little bit of uh, monthly amount to our cause. <laughs> we don't we don't charge obviously for the podcast and everything we produce is available to all. That might change in future, you never know. But these are the folks who um, out of gratitude, I guess, have donated. So I just want to run through them very quickly. We have three levels. They are Olympic athlete, 
Uh, and in that group, we have six Olympic athletes to welcome. Nikki, no surname given. Welcome, Nikki. Thanks for your pledge. Paul Brady, Anders Norregard, Simon Finch. That's the first of there the two. Go. Marcus Blarock, and then Nicholas Finch. That completes the the, the triumvirate, the triumvirate of, Finch of Finch brothers. brothers. There we go. Um, yeah. You need to have a word with Wade. Wade is Wade <laughs> is my, my son. son. <laughs> he cycles like a demon. He's a hell of a good cyclist, and he is not yet joined the Finch clan on Patreon. <laughs> uh, then Olympic champion, also six there. So the, the, this is a slightly higher monthly donation. So thanks hugely to these people: Mike Hewison, Paul Whitney. Patrick Doyle, Ian Robbo, who I've known for years on Twitter and is now part of the Patreon family. Thanks, Ian. Shane Malone and then Dean Shears. Thanks to all of you. You are Olympic champions. And then the last of those is Stefan Keenan, who is an Olympic legend and then some because he went in way above even the, the minimum requirement for an Olympic legend. So he joins the pantheon of Olympic gods on Mount Zeus. <laughs> so thanks very much to him. I mean, it, it's, it's just hugely flattering. We, yeah. we do this. We squeeze it in amongst work. That's why we're sometimes quite sporadic. We apologize. But when we get these donations and pledges, it really is. It, it's just a very humbling and flattering thing to receive so thanks very much to all of you yeah indeed just to give you some background i mean i know i'm sort of sharing some family secrets here today but uh both my brothers um when, when we grew up i always felt that i was the closest i was going to get to elite sport was going to be as a journalist um so i've spent my, most of my life writing about it and as we can see on this podcast talking about it but both my brothers are very competent uh writers and uh, just on a couple of weeks ago my Brother who lives in Australia did a sub 75 minute uh, 21k at the age of 14 or 47. That's Simon, eh? Yeah, Simon. So, very, very good runner. And uh, he's often the subject of many discussions around some of the technical aspects of running. And I know that Ross and I are going to chat about some of these things we're talking about. Like, he's got a system now where they can measure power in running. And mm. a lot of his stuff in Strava now is uh, measured in power on running. Um, and then Nicholas is uh, somebody who loves the seriously long distances in cycling. And I'm not talking about the sort of 200 kilometer 160 100 miler sort of distances he's done things like the nerd carp which is you know 300 kilometers a day for 15 days and on the weekend he just uh, threw out a quick 200k ride on his own in in, in england so um, Good, uh, I, i'm definitely the the sort of the um i wouldn't say i'm the black sheep but i'm certainly not at any any level <laughs> athletically than my brothers are I'm, I'm more of a talker than a doer Nicholas could listen to every <laughs> podcast we've ever made in one ride. Um, yes, the, and then the thing for Simon, and this is also for other listeners, is here's the, the science of sport challenges. He has to break his mass in a yeah. half marathon. Yeah. So that's, that's the running equivalent of shooting your age in golf is run under your weight in a half marathon in kilograms. Pounds, so I, so I pounds actually, is cheating. <laughs> so for him, he must he must be seventy two. He's seventy two kilos. So yeah. he's got to knock three minutes off that, mm. or he's got to hold a seventy five as a heavier guy. Go for it, Simon. So the interesting one was to, we actually discussed this the other day. I, when you told me that was a good challenge for him, he was sort of saying, well, that's possible for somebody like me. But when you consider some of the elite male athletes who probably sit around the sort of 56, 57, yeah, exactly. that's, exactly. that's properly yeah. good. And for the female in particular, that's that's often quite tricky because no, the female athletes are almost impossible no, not happening. for them to break no, one this hour. Is, this is a, yeah, it's a if you can do thing. that. And so if you're listening and you've done that, let us know. Because yeah. I'm curious to I've got a mate who's a 90 kilogram guy and he runs every year. He's run a sub 90 for like 15 years in a row. And yeah. that's, he's going to see how long he can keep it going. Cool. Um, so it, it does because most of the elites are close. The elite mm. men are mm. close to their mass, the Kenyan guys and so mm. on. But not even there, 
I would say fewer than half of them are doing it. Mm. But you can go and do it. Do it, Simon. And listeners, let us know if you have. <laughs> it's a good challenge. Yeah. Right. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of what we're going to be discussing today. And uh, let's start off with some of the studies that Ross has been uh, looking at over the last couple of weeks, talking specifically about whether COVID and the long-term effects on COVID have had on sporting groups, not necessarily professional, but most of those studies have happened amongst serious athletes, haven't they? Yes, because in order to track an athlete or a person, they, they tend to be part of a system that also requires testing and then medical intervention and longitudinal tracking. So naturally that's going to happen in athletes. But of course, we, we mentioned in the introduction, when there are so many studies and so many questions about COVID, there are now numerous studies around the world tracking people who have had COVID in different degrees. Mm. So mildly symptomatic versus severe versus hospitalized. And in the future, we will have a better understanding of what this long COVID, have you heard this term, long yeah. COVID? Yeah. Um, why it happens. Even at the start of this whole pandemic, people were bringing up this idea that we knew that influenza affected some people for a long time. I mean, I'm sure you know people who've yeah. had the flu and they just cannot recover from it. Months afterwards, they're still fatigued and lacking energy and, and so on. Often when they train through so, early flu, don't they? Yeah, and so mm. we'll get into that because yeah. this, was, this was one of the key concerns about the return to sport is when an athlete has had COVID, what is the risk to that athlete when they start training again? Because mm. there are literally fatal complications that can occur that risk is real and so the decision makers had to try and assess that and the evidence for that took a while coming because these things are i hope all the listeners appreciate that when you start studying this stuff it's not easy it's mm -hmm. very difficult and they they have now started publishing that and so in the last couple of months there are two big studies that have come out of the usa one of them is on professional athletes in their leagues. So now we're talking NFL, baseball, soccer, uh, women's NBA and men's NBA and ice hockey. So those six, 789 athletes, I think, were tracked. Um, I forget exactly the numbers. 330 odd had SARS COVID test positive. Sure. Uh, and they it's almost half. Yeah, about that. Sure. Um, but but look, it's that's not the whole cohort of athletes available. So it's a convenient sample. So it wouldn't be surprising right. that you'd have more. Um, and what they then did is cardiac screening. So they did the full workup, the ECGs, the cardiac MRIs, the troponins and so on. And you see, the thing they were looking for is, is there evidence weeks after COVID has cleared that these people still have some cardiac complications? And the, and the main one is myocarditis. That's That's really the scary one that is known to exist as a consequence of viral infection. Which is quite simply. So myo muscle, cardio, heart and itis inflammation. So it is literally an inflammatory disease of the heart muscle. And so what happens there is that the viral affects the heart muscle or the, the pericardium, which is uh, you get pericarditis as well, also around the heart. And what's happening in that instance is that you then get muscle damage initially, necrosis, which is the death of the muscle, inflammation occurs as a result so you get edema and fluid around that's how they identify it using this cardiac mri uh, method and the problem with myocarditis is that it has been linked to sudden death in athletics in athletes mm. um, so that is and in fact the, the data that i've seen suggests that about nine ten percent so it's every tenth case of sudden death can be linked or associated with a myocarditis that's why 
and you, you, you publish these magazines, I guarantee you, you dozens of times you've told people, do not exercise when you are infected with a virus. Yeah. And that's, that's the big thing you're trying to avoid is, is that, I mean, I remember when I was 15, just having just started running, a guy that we trained with in his early 30s collapsed and died in a 8K time trial that we did. It was February that year. And he said to me he was feeling a little bit poorly. And if we finished the 8K, he sat down on the sidewalk. We went off to do some stretches with my school sort of team athletes. Sure. The time we came back, he'd lost consciousness and he, and he died. And it was later reported that he'd had the flu and that he decided he'd try and run it off. And that's the catastrophic outcome of it. So this is not... It might be a small risk, but <laughs> if it happens, it's 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 life ending. And I mean, if you talk about, I mean, obviously we're talking specifically about COVID, but we are talking generally about immunity and mm. the effects of disease on and viruses on the body. When professional athletes get the flu, is is there a protocol that they go through to say, okay, I mean, with a professional athlete saying, okay, if I've got the chills they just don't train or is there always that sort of desire? The reason why I ask this is that I've seen on a couple of occasions people where they talk about an athlete being sick during the Tour de France, for instance, and they kind of get through that first week and they seem to come out the other end. Mm. But essentially, in that situation, if you, if, you, if you have a virus, you are literally playing with your life. Yeah, and I mean, I couldn't tell you what that risk is because you can imagine how difficult it is to study. You'd have to gather thousands of people with mm. viral infections and then track them during exercise, which if you did that deliberately would be highly unethical. Mm. And to do it incidentally is very complicated. So I couldn't put a risk to this. Probably mm. someone in the world can. Maybe in future we should do a, a more detailed exploration of sudden death and then we can explore in, in athletes and explore this. But yes, that risk is definitely non-zero. Mm. And in the absence of incentives to exercise, the, the, why would you take it? Um, what those guys are doing is pushing on because they've <laughs> decided rightly or wrongly that the costs mm. or, the, or the risks are pressures. The risks don't <laughs> outweigh the benefits because mm. of those pressures. Mm. But, but yeah, that's the problem. So in, so in answer to your question, is there a protocol? It depends what sport and where you play it. Because in US professional sports, cardiac screening is done. So an athlete, and it's, it's, it's very influenced by symptoms. So a viral infection that produces the symptoms that we've all <laughs> become too familiar with, the mm. shivering, the chills, the fever, the aching muscles and joints, that sort of stuff. And then plus the, the now we know the cough and all that with COVID, that is an indication for cardiac screening on return to play. Um, that cardiac screening can take various forms, but generally an ECG, they, they measure something called troponin, which is a, a protein that exists in heart muscle in a certain form. And if that's in the blood, it indicates damage to the heart muscle. It wouldn't be in your blood otherwise. Yeah. And then if those signs are abnormal, then they send you for cardiac MRIs. And, and the, I was listening to a podcast on this as part of the stuff for rugby, because we're thinking about what, what do we do about COVID players who, who want to return? And they then do this cardiac MRI, and that's where you identify the myocarditis and the pericarditis. Imperfectly, there are false positives. Sometimes an athlete's heart looks like a sick heart when it's actually very healthy. And so it gets quite tricky to distinguish between a, a, a positive MRI finding caused by disease as opposed to cardiac remodeling, basically. Sure. Okay. So that's... that's Sim a, Simmer's heart, is that... 
Well, as, so just general, as, large as hearts. Yeah. Well, yeah. That, yeah, so that's an example of a false positive in another area of cardiac mm. screening. Um, but the same thing is true for this myocarditis using cardiac MRI. So anyway, the, the, the fear is, so, and then, sorry, backtrack. When they find it, I believe, I heard this on that podcast, that there was a somewhat arbitrary but three-month stand-down period imposed on athletes during which time they had to recover from that myocarditis because the risk is, as, as I say, too high for them to justify. Mm-hmm. Not a fixed three months, mind, but that was the, that was the recommendation. And, and incidentally, the studies that came out, and there are two of them, the, the latest one is by um, Bagish and a whole group of collaborators. I think the first one's Martinez et al. We'll give you the links in the show notes. Um, they found very low percentage of athletes with these myocarditis. So that's good. Yeah. I think it was 0.6 in the professional athlete study and 0.5% in the college athletes. So we're talking six or five in a thousand. Because the, so, I mean, the reason why that's interesting is that, and I'm just going on my perception of some of the stuff I've read is that initially there was a lot of concern about the long-term effects mm. of COVID on professional athletes. And right. I think there were a couple of studies that came out that suggested that athletes were, that there was going to be medium to long-term uh, issues right. there. Did you see their studies? Yeah. How, how did they look? I mean, it, was, it, was, it wasn't looking good for, for, for athletes that had COVID. Yeah, I think it was in August, September last year was the first one, came out of Germany, if I remember correctly, and they'd, they'd put 100 people who'd been quite sick with COVID. So that's the first key point is these were older people. I think mean, mean age was 59 or early 60s, somewhere around there, and they'd been quite ill. So mm-hmm. these, these were sick patients who'd been quite severely affected by COVID, and 78% of them had these signs of cardiac abnormalities after recovery from COVID. And that was the headline grabber. Mm. That was an example of, I'm not going to call it a, a bad study, but it was a it was a widely debated, criticized study because of its design. You know, you're taking a, a, a fairly biased sample. And then the media, and this is not even on the scientist, the media says, cardiac damage in COVID. Now, all of a sudden, everyone thinks that that applies to every one of the 30 million in America. Well, no, it applies to potentially the very ill people who have it. And then there's still issues around who diagnoses it, what's the threshold, because it's not a black or white diagnosis. There's a degree of subjectivity. There's criteria that have been agreed upon by experts about when is it a positive, when is it potential, when is it definite, you know? So, None of this stuff is as definitive as we'd like it to be, I think, is the, is the answer. Subsequently, there was a study out of Ohio State University where they took 26 young athletes and they found four cases of positive or abnormal MRIs in the heart, cardiac MRIs. So that was kind of then a follow-up saying, hang on, these are young guys. These are athletic um, 20-odd-year-olds in the university mm-hmm. environment and 4 out of 26, that's almost a quarter, are showing the same signs. This is a problem. So that was why this big study was eventually done and is so important is because it's now shown that the, the prevalence is, is considerably lower than was initially thought. That's the good news. It's not non-zero, but, yeah. but we now have a set of guidelines that says that if you've had COVID and you were symptomatic, this should be done, A, B, C, if you were asymptomatic, you, you need to do less because the, the symptoms turns out to be none of the, 
in the in the 789 for instance there were five cases of abnormal cardiac mris none of them were asymptomatic so only symptomatic people have that right so it's it's the so what was initially a very foggy distorted picture is becoming clearer and hopefully within another year it'll be clear enough that we can definitively answer it but so in other words what we're saying is that if you're an athlete that's potentially contracted covid you're not symptomatic then you get the next level that are symptomatic and then you've got the next level of people that potentially have long-term effects from that Correct. symptomatic so in other words the chances of having long-term mm. effects as an athlete or somebody right. who's fit of things like myocarditis are obviously relatively small yeah we're talking five six and a thousand yeah and it can be identified with look they're not easy test to do and a stress ECG is not something you can just get at a pharmacy <laughs> mm. but it's certainly easier than a cardiac MRI so the, the positive contribution made by these papers for instance is that there's now a, a sequence a well understood sequence it's not that different to what's always existed there's a there's a triad of basic tests and if any of those are abnormal then they're saying now you go for the cardiac MRI so if there are listeners who are concerned about this then then those stress ECG type tests that you can have done at a medical practice where they, where obviously they do them um, would be your first port of call but your risks are and and this is this was maybe the interesting thing is that the latest paper Bagish et al concluded that the risks of this myocarditis in that population is about the same as the risk of myocarditis with the flu influenza that we've seen for the five years before so it it appears that in the young athletic population COVID does not create a new risk it's just the same as baseline so that's reassuring mm. now I know there's people maybe listen to this the COVID denialists and they're going to use this to <laughs> weaponize the fact <laughs> oh COVID is just the flu it's not mm-hmm. but in this specific instance the evidence that it seems to exist from this paper shows that COVID doesn't actually increase the risk of myocarditis beyond what the normal flu did ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So interesting, just a quick digression here. Myocarditis, once you have it, are you are you able to recover from it? Yeah, is it a permanent no. condition? No, you, you recover, are. you recover. So that's the same as any infection, inflammatory response. The body just needs the time to deal with it. And what you and and of course what you don't want to do is impose an additional stress on a heart where the heart muscle is already affected and if, and you know, in the early stages of myocarditis, you're getting literally the, the myocytes are being damaged and then there's necrosis and the fluid and what that leads to then eventually can be these arrhythmias that's when they become fatal you know the, the normal rhythm of the heart the electrical rhythms of the heart get messed up and but that you, goes away over time if, if you train if you train when you've potentially got this inflammation of the heart what you're saying is there is potential long-term damage or permanent damage as a result of that, do we know that? That, that I, d- I don't know. I don't mm. know whether you see, you see the big risk if you train with this damage to the heart is sudden death. Yeah. <laughs> so anything long term is irrelevant. No, it's, quite, it's, uh, quite, it's quite a big risk. Yeah, that's this long term is no longer on the table. Um, I don't know whether there's a dose response almost where mm. 
instead of going all or nothing, you could have a five out of ten, and then you've caused some. I I, I suspect not, but I'm not a mm. look. I don't want to. The world is too full of we'll people. We have to get a cardiologist one day on this. You know, we try to get John. John Dresner is the guy, and he's now the editor of the British Journal of Sports Medicine. And last year. When the U.S. college sport was about to restart, we we tried to get him on to talk about sudden death generally, mm. and he was he was keen. And then I think they, I can't imagine how busy they must have been trying to get that sport going. A thousand studies. So anyway, John Dresner was lined up, and then COVID COVID mm. claimed him from our lineup. But we'll we'll do it again. Because the the reason why I asked that question is that obviously for all of us that train and you know there are many amateur cyclists runners people enduring during any kind of sport who sometimes when we think we've got a little bit of a cold might have some signs of the flu mm. we might do some damage to our hearts and i've always wondered whether that damage is permanent and can we can we can we uh are we able to you know stop uh, get our hearts back to where they used to be like when smokers give up smoking do they no longer do eventually their lungs become normal again after a couple of years does the same thing happen with the hearts and i i guess it's a good question we should ask him it is and i mean i don't i don't want to you know the world is too full of people who pretend to be experts in things they're not but i i suspect that you don't incur damage that is absolutely irreversible but you still wouldn't want to take that risk that's why in your magazine, I, I bet you've done the neck check article piece here. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And if so that's if it's below the neck, don't do it. Yeah, by which you mean fever, chills, aching muscles, because that's an indication of a systemic infection. That's viral. If you have something where there's a cough and a sinus type infection and headaches, then the rule of thumb is that it's a little bit safer. And I suspect that in many of the cyclists who get that bronchitis type infection, they would say that they can go because they know that it's localized. Whereas when it's a systemic infection, then that's when you start to take that risk of now that's that systemic infection is going to hit the heart and suddenly you become a statistic. So my advice always is, what what have you got to gain if mm-hmm. you're a recreational athlete, even if you're a serious recreational athlete? What is there to gain from going on doing two hours <laughs> with a viral infection? Like, what are you trying to prove? I guess there's a lot to lose. Yeah, the the thing is that it is very difficult when you are somebody that relies on exercise beyond just the exercise portion of that for many people who, like you and I, who rely on exercise to some extent for stress and Mm. reducing stress. It's become part of our lives. The guys are riding on a Sunday morning. You think, well, I'm not feeling too bad. Maybe I'll just go and give it a whirl. You know, there's always that temptation to do it. And I think we've often said in this podcast, you know, be smart about how you train and and not just on a level of being sick or not, Mm. but just being smart about how your body feels a lot of the time is is key. But it's it's like everything in life. It's just trade-offs, you know. You could go Mm. and do it and maybe you make it, but you make your situation worse. Mm. And so what would have been three days off to recover becomes 10 days off to recover because of one ride. So anyway... Logically, I know it's hard. I do it. We all do it. We all do it. Yeah. But logically, you should just actually say two or three days, and then I'll start up again. I remember a couple of uh, episodes ago, you mentioned how the body responds and to exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that this is an area of speciality where we probably need to get somebody in that talks specifically about this. But we we do we know that exercise helps build a strong immune system oh yes that's unequivocally known there's no doubt that fitness equates to immune performance Mm -hmm. and 
it's been shown in numerous studies, I think, that healthier, fitter people are less likely to be affected by pathogens and stress. And I mean, infection is a stressor. So mm. if, if fitness can be viewed as an integrated system where the body is just able to deal with stress, then it stands to reason that fitness will make us better able to deal with illness. Mm. And so it's been shown that in athletically trained individuals, the risk of infection is lower. And there's what's called a, because it's, it's always a little bit more complex than just that, so let me build it up. There's, there's what's called a J curve. So if a sedentary, inactive, healthy person has a risk of say one, a moderately trained or well-trained person has a risk of 0.5. So in other words, they're half as likely to get sick. Wow. Right? It's not just small between, percentage. Between, so the studies, that, there's a guy called David Neiman, who's the pioneer of this exercise and immune function. That's his, he's got a graph in one of his papers showing this. You see, where it gets tricky is that as you then go beyond reasonable or manageable exercise towards high training loads, mm. that risk then tilts back up. So that's why it's called the J-curve. It's so you become immune compromised the harder you train. Yeah, and that risk mm. can be five or six times higher. So a highly mm. trained athlete, high volumes and high intensities is more likely to suffer infection than someone who's moderately trained. So that's where, and I think... And how do you define that? How do you well, define moderate versus the, high intensity? That's, that's the always thing, the question, because, Exactly. And it's moderated, remember, by so many factors. So mm. the training load that I can handle, say, right now might have caused an illness six months ago because my diet was different then compared to now or vice versa. Mm. I'm not getting enough sleep because I've got a toddler or whatever it is, maybe. Then the training load that I would have been able to handle is now suddenly too much because the sleep has compromised yeah. immune function. So work stress will make you sick at the same training load that you would have been fine with without the work stress. So you have to, I think, have a holistic approach and view. But the rule of thumb generally there's, is that there is this, or the, the, I think the agreed upon concept is that there is a J-shaped curve and that people who do more training and high intensity training are more likely to be infected than people who do moderate. So it introduces us again to what I've used before. It's a Goldilocks zone, you know? Yeah. It, this applies to more than just the temperature of your porridge. It also applies to the volume of your training. So not too little and not too much, just right. Mm. But you've asked the key question. Just right is, <laughs> is yeah. highly variable from one person to the next, and even within one person. Because one person. I think, I mean, we did touch on this very early on uh, when, when we did our first podcast around COVID, mm. where, in fact, I asked you what was what's sort of the protocol for many athletes out there. And, of course, they're, you know, very top-end athletes. They wouldn't have been able to necessarily do events, so they would probably take a few steps back in terms mm -hmm. of their training during the lockdown period mm -hmm. and the same applied for amateur athletes and i think there is that sense for if you know your body and your reasonably regular exerciser that you know when you're pushing it a bit mm. as you mentioned when you understand that there's stresses around work and sleep and lifestyle that sort of thing that you kind of know instinctively when you're pushing it a bit i right. know for instance when i get a little bit of a sore throat that maybe I'm pushing a little bit. And uh, I think it's one of those things where you, it is very individual. Yeah, this is, it's, it's highly unscientific. But if you say, how are you feeling? If the guy says, I feel a bit run down. Mm, yeah. That is, that, is a, that is a symptom or a sign, whatever you want to call it, a feeling that is a precursor to, I'm going to get sick soon. Yeah. And so you're constantly like walking that tightrope mm. when you're training. And this is true for everyone. Elite athletes are doing it even more intensively. Mm 
Well, let's say that a tightrope is further above the ground, mm. but it's the same issue for them. It's the same for any any person. So it, that's why self-awareness, training diaries, monitoring sleep and recovery start to become quite influential. Mm. And then we've all seen now the practices that we know will reduce infection. So athletes in high training blocks do avoid closed rooms, tight, confined spaces with mm. lots of people, hand washing is known in Olympic teams to reduce the risk of infection at the Olympic Games. So, mm. and I remember when I did a little bit of work <clears throat> with Arsenal Football Club, every door handle had a hand sanitizer on it. And this was pre-COVID. Sure. So when you, when you open a door, you basically <laughs> spritzed your hands with hand sanitizer because it's known that if you do that stuff, you're not likely to get, and that's not COVID prevention, right? Yeah. So this is, this is E. coli. This is, mm. this is bacteria, parvovirus, all of them. So, yeah, that's where you start taking precautions. It's interesting. I mean, you, you touched on, obviously, a little bit about what's, what we, the Olympics is coming up in a couple of months' time from now. And <laughs> Maybe. We don't know. We don't, yeah, <laughs> with the infection rate going up in Tokyo, obviously, there are some yeah. questions about that. But there are obviously a lot of questions about what the protocols will be. And I didn't know that, as you said with Arsenal, that at that level of sport, that even before pre-COVID times, there was all these precautions. Because I guess what you're saying is, at that level of sport those athletes are slightly immune compromised often. Oh, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, and it's not unique. That's not just Arsenal. They weren't doing something innovative. Yeah. There. That's, I remember reading Norwegian Olympic policy was every athlete was given two or three bottles of hand sanitizer a week mm. and they had to carry it around on themselves because that's what it took. Those cross-country skiers, the, I mean, you can imagine the airway challenge because this is the other thing, by the way, endurance athletes get... Up, what they get what look like upper respiratory tract infections, which aren't actually infections, just because of the huge volume of air they're breathing in and out. Mm. So they are they might be vulnerable then to an infection because of that inflammatory response. Yeah. You know? So so you have to protect them with other precautions. Mm. Is basically the point. What's there. the open window hypothesis? So <laughs> this relates to overtraining, doesn't it? Yeah, and that that's an acute training bout thing. Um, it's somewhat contended in the academic world. But the idea is that when you do exercise, there is a period after that session during which your susceptibility to infection goes up. So in other words, the window is open. Mm. Now, that, that is, so way back in the 1990s, for instance, it was shown that runners who competed in the Los Angeles Marathon were more likely to report infections the week after than those who didn't. Yes. Two Oceans Marathon, which is a local one in Cape Town, same study, I think, the Los Angeles one, the runners were about four or five times more likely to have an infection than the non-runner. Here in Two Oceans, it was about twice as likely. The, and this is the week after the right, event. So this is so in the week. Their body through under a lot of stress. You race the Saturday, and for the next week or two, did you get sick? And it turns out you're twice as likely to say yes to that question than if you didn't <laughs> sit on the couch mm. that Saturday. Uh, similarly marathon runners in preparation there is a response a dose response such that those who are doing 90k a week or more are more likely to get sick than those doing 70 to 90 those doing 50 to 70 so these things all contribute to this idea that more training exposes you to risk and it's been suggested that that risk happens soon after training because mm. 
very briefly, the immune system has these two parts. We've all, I think, learned about antibodies because of vaccines <laughs> and COVID, which induces them. That's that's kind of like the adaptive part of our immune system, the, the one that has memory. So our body sees a pathogen, COVID or whatever it is, and then builds the antibodies to it so that next time we see it, we can instantly mm-hmm. neutralize. We also have an innate immune system, which is more like the white blood cells and mediated by the inflammatory response, which we've all heard about. Both of those systems are compromised by high intensity, high volume exercise. So they've measured, for instance, the white blood cells, the antibody responses, the inflammatory response, the cytokines after a marathon compared to a... What are cytokines, quickly? So cytokines are cellular mediators of inflammation. You would have, many listeners would have heard about the so-called cytokine storm. The, the people who had the worst response to COVID were the ones who wound up having the cytokine storm. So the inflammatory response in these individuals was just absolutely So they're enormous. a marker for infl- inflammation. Correct, yeah. Right. yeah. So what happens is when you run a marathon, your neutrophil, which is an inflammatory cell right on the white blood cell side, your antibodies are all suppressed and your cortisol and your inflammatory markers are all increased. So... In the period after a marathon, you are in a inflammatory state, mm-hmm. not, not ideal. Because the theory is that that suppresses the body's ability to mount an immune response to a subsequent infection. So now I'm in this sort of inflammatory state. My cortisol is up. That's an anti-inflammatory trying to correct all this. I now encounter a flu bug. Mm-hmm. I just cannot deal with that on top of everything else. Whereas when you do moderate intensity exercise, the opposite happens. Inflammation goes down antibodies and neutrophil activity and natural killer cell activity go up so now i'm in a now i'm primed to actually deal with infection Mm -hmm. so they talk about for instance the exchange of these immune cells from lymph nodes to circulation is increased by exercise which makes sense yeah and so this is called immunosurveillance which is increased by exercise sure so if you think if you think about uh, your, your immune system like your neighborhood police. <laughs> so the little white cells are cruising around with their guns cocked looking for, <laughs> yeah, because they get around more when they they're exercising. slowly rotating blue lights <laughs> trying to just put off anyone. Yeah. I that's, like the image of that. That's basically what it is. It's your neighborhood security watch or police yeah. or whatever it is. And they're patrolling more often after exercise because there is just activation, increased exchange of these immune cells between the tissues. And so now if we encounter a pathogen, we're going to hit it quicker and we're going to neutralize it because we also have, this is the other thing exercise training does, is it amplifies the capacity for an antigen response, the antibody response to be mounted. Well-trained individuals have better vaccine responses than untrained, unhealthy, unfit people, for instance. Yeah. So, so yes, yeah, so the long and short of it is that exercise training helps, but it is thought that there might be a period after high intensity or high volume training where you are more vulnerable. That's contended. So for instance, you know, I said to you about Los Angeles Marathon, five times more likely, two oceans twice as likely if you ran it to get sick. Mm-hmm. It turns out that religious gatherings are precipitators of infection. Now, <laughs> we all know why, because they are confined spaces with a lot of people in a small, often unventilated Spot. But there's different mechanics in terms of how a virus might attack the body there, isn't there? Why well, would that be an excuse and or a well, or an idea that that research around exercise is not accurate? Well, because what the what the so so this is what those who argue against open window are saying is that when you put thirty thousand people on the streets of a marathon like in Los Angeles, that creates the same proximity 
social <laughs> what's the opposite of social distancing <laughs> yeah issues that are Intimate pilgrimage distancing. <laughs> well <laughs> social non-distancing social yeah. closening uh, so so what they're saying is that the exercise event precipitates the infection not, not the, the exercise, exercise itself okay. does that make s- right. that's what i was getting at okay. that somewhat seems like a stretch to me as a non-scientist but well, because so, it makes sense that the body's compromised post a serious bout of exercise. Surely yeah, so that is. If, if I was if I was ruling on this, and there is a, incidentally, if you want to read on this, I'll also give this. <laughs> I'll give you this link for the show notes. Yeah. Is, there is a debate, a written debate in in a journal where two different groups debate the yes no around the open window hypothesis. And it does it or does it not exist? And you you can make a ruling for yourself. If if it was me judging this debate, I would rule in favour of the open window hypothesis. But there are people saying that it's it's not so much the exercise stress; it's the exercise occasion. Mm. Mm. Plus, plus remember that the exercise often involves a flight. I'm going to fly to the race. It involves a couple of nights of compromised sleep. It involves going out afterwards and potentially yeah. socializing, which the person might not do. So there, there are factors that could confound this open window hypothesis is the point. Mm. But it, it does make sense. And I think on balance, and I'm nobody's idea of an immunologist, but on balance, there seems to be enough evidence directly that immune markers are negatively affected by exercise. So if you were, if we, if we take and your your idea or the suggestion that when you are doing a serious amount of exercise you are slightly immune compromised what can you do to to offset that i mean what what sort of things can an athlete do to stop getting sick okay three things this might end up being more than three but let's try three number (laughs) one is that session is part of an overall load management strategy so if that is a high intensity three hour ride on a saturday then you don't do the same thing sunday monday tuesday or wednesday you allow for recovery so that you can return to baseline and cope. So that's that's number one. It's right. overall load management. Training logic. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, f- for the same reasons that you wouldn't do it because you'd actually just overtrain. Mm. Just don't do it because of immune function also. In fact, overtraining and immune function are pretty locked together in, mm. in, in lockstep, right? Makes sense. Uh, diet. So the replacement of energy, because if you are negative energy balance, immune system is compromised. So you you don't train hard and cut energy Mm. out because then you amplify that energy deficit and compromise it. And that's why we've spoken on this podcast about REDS. One of the signs of REDS is immune function. Persistent infections is an indication that your energy balance is negative too often for too long. Uh, Sleep, which again is part of the holistic side of things you have to that's when you recover we spoke to dale ray and immune function is massively influenced by sleep that's when we that's when we do our business antibodies are made during those cycles so therefore you must prioritize it don't squeeze it in and then actually the fourth one is just practical don't expose yourself to risk where you can avoid it Mm. so we, I don't need to tell people after 15 months of pandemic how to avoid that risk, but you know, you know what it is. Yeah. So I think those are the those are the key things there. But but people should be reassured. By the way, I know now it sounds all negative. We're making it out as though when you go and exercise, you're actually increasing your risk. You, on balance and in totality, you are far less likely to be sick as a fit athletic person than you are. If you're in unfit, so this is. <laughs> well, does that? Well, I suppose the question is: Does that apply to COVID? Uh, it does. So, so it applies to all disease because, again, the 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 stress adaptation model 
is is universal so a fit person who is capable of dealing with the stress of exercise is also capable of dealing with the stress of an infection that's the point without it's superficial mm-hmm. you asked me off air can we go into the mechanisms i don't know mm-hmm. so no is the answer but it is universally true and in fact a really interesting study was done. The, the, the Mayo Clinic is a very famous institution in the United States. They test thousands and thousands of people for cardiovascular conditions. And they, they use exercise very well as part of the treatment and diagnostic mm. procedures. And they've got thousands of these athletes, or not athletes, members of the public, non-athletes, in fact, who have got exercise tests and who subsequently tested positive for COVID. So this is a great data set and a paper has been published on this. And what they have found is that if you divide these members of the public average ages in the 50s into quartiles, so in other words, top 25%, middle 50%, let's call it, or or second 25, third 25, and bottom 25 for fitness, the, the individuals in the lowest quartile, so in other words, those who are the least fit measured by VO2 max or METs during exercise, are four times more likely to end up in hospital with COVID than those in the, in the fittest group. Sure. So your, your metabolic fitness created by exercise is a very strong predictor of your hospitalization likelihood when you have COVID. That's a massively influential lesson and principle for and people. And that's a study that we can... We can rely on. <laughs> yeah, this is a good study. Like Given it's, our discussion it's a thousand, around I think it's 1,180 odd COVID patients yeah. um, who were then tracked. They, they co vary because you can appreciate the people who produce in exercise tests the best VO2 maxes, the, the, the highest performance, also tend to be healthy in many other ways. Yeah. They're not obese, they're not smokers, they don't have heart disease. In this particular study, they co varied for those things. So they mm. said, even with diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, smoking, and so on. Even with those things, exercise fitness Mm -hmm. predicts in a negative way (laughs) likelihood of going to hospital. So there's a negative relationship. The fitter you are, the less likely you are to have a severe COVID outcome. And that was, I remember reading a stat around 2000 and whenever it was SARS in Hong Kong, the same thing was found there. Fitness and training was more likely those who were fit and trained were more likely mm. to stay out of hospitals. So it is, <laughs> and that's why a year ago it was already clear, fitness is a public health service. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can do a lot of things, but fitness, fitness is in principle like a vaccine. Mm. That's what it does. Yeah. yeah. It's the ultimate way. I mean, we have, I mean, obviously hopping about this a lot on this podcast because we are talking about sport generally, but it shows you that the the effects of this, and there's lots of reasons why people exercise and a lot of them are to do with weight loss Mm. and lifestyle and that sort of thing. But there is that immune response to not only COVID, but many other things that it's almost like it's a a positive side effect. Fitness is health. I mean, that's what it is. I mean, our bodies are designed to move, aren't they? Exactly. Exactly. We've imposed restricted restrictions on that movement because of lifestyle mm. but it's that's that's the bad thing about <laughs> advancements mm. so but but wait there's more wow, i sound like an infomercial <laughs> remember remember that exercise is also treating obesity mm. or preventing obesity and diabetes and people who exercise are less likely to smoke and have high blood pressure so yeah. if all those things are known now to be comorbidities hypertension etc cetera, etc cetera, and you can exercise to reduce their degree and prevalence 
then exercise is helping in that way also. Mm. So in actual fact, there are, there are two things going on. One is a direct effect that this Mayo Clinic study has found is that when you are in the fitter top 25%, the fittest 25%, you are a quarter as likely to end up in hospital with COVID. And also if you're exercising, and they didn't show this, but it's true, is when you exercise, you're less likely to have all the other things that will put you in, in hospital. And and by covariating for it, they've shown that both those things mm-hmm. exist at the same time. So it, it really is. Exercise is medicine and it's preventative medicine. So for those of you that are listening to this podcast that don't have a regular exercise regime, I hope that's enough of an incentive to get yourselves out on the road or on a bike or any kind of exercise that uh, just gives you a little bit of health benefit because there's more than just, you know, just uh, just uh, losing weight and uh, and getting some time away from the stress that we have in our daily lives. But yeah, fascinating. Just one quick thing. Um, we touched on this a little bit before we started our podcast today. One of the interesting studies was the effects of close proximity sport mm. on COVID infection. I know it's slightly, uh, we're digressing slightly from the subject, but what, what was the results of, of those studies? Yeah, so also quite positive. The, the, all the listeners will recall that when sport was stopped, mm. um, it had to be because the, the prevalence in the community of COVID was so high that the gathering of people for sport, even if it was just the players, was likely to just accelerate the spread. So in, in order to flatten the curve, which was the buzzword, we had to try and keep people apart, even mm. on sports fields. What subsequently emerged, and I think this was quite predictable, I mean, we said it a few times on this podcast, is that when young, healthy individuals are outdoors, the risk of transmission of the virus is going to be exceptionally low, like mm. really, really low. I remember seeing one out of 300-odd outbreaks in China had been traced to an outdoor event. All the others are indoors. So. Mm. It was very apparent early on that indoor transmission was massively, massively more likely than outdoor transmission. Mm. Studies are now starting to come in because of the tracking and tracing and the sport. See, sport actually provides quite a cool, closed, controlled environment to do this in. And there's a study by Ben Jones in rugby league. There's another one in football. But the rugby league one showed, for instance, that they they could not identify a, a transmission caused by playing rugby. They could identify traveling to and from the ground in a car, sharing it with someone with an infection, social events, clubhouses, visiting homes. But they could not identify, despite the proximity and the fact that you've got these players breathing on each other, tackling mm. each other in very close, intimate yeah, the, contact. The scrum is quite intimate. <laughs> exactly. So the, the, this, this <laughs> one, by the way, was rugby league, right? Yeah, yeah, but okay. but this, still, same thing. is like they are literally in each other's faces. Mm. No transmissions confirmed through that and very low overall because of the policies that were put in place. Mm. The same is true in, in uh, cycling. Remember in the Tour de France, you've got 180-odd people gathered together daily for three weeks, basically never apart. They had a couple of cases, but all of them were in mechanics. The race director, remember, had to leave mm. the race because sure. of presumably handshaking with some dignitaries, but no secondary infection to other athletes. And mm. so the, the, the picture that's emerging now is that the risk of transmission in sport is exceptionally low. Where sport becomes more dangerous, risky, is as a catalyst for the things that are high risk. So for instance, uh, players sharing change room facilities for too long. So you had to monitor that and make sure that there was no lingering around the change rooms. Uh, The public attending games using public transport, that's where sport Mm. Then we, last year in June, we covered this, like 
when Novak Djokovic organized his tennis tour and they all had nightclub after parties, that was the problem. Not the, <laughs> it, it wasn't, wasn't the tennis the, It wasn't the tennis right. being played outdoors in a, yes, on a Serbian tour. afternoon. Mm. It was the fact that they all went to these nightclubs in the evening and just shouting at each other from ten, 20 centimeters away just to be heard. Mm. That's, a, that's a disaster waiting to happen in For terms sure. of... So, so anyway, the, 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 the picture is good that sport itself doesn't cause onward transmission. And that's why it's so good that the world is starting now, I think, to return to community sports. Mm. I've seen a couple of games of social cricket, club cricket matches here in Cape Town. I know in England, uh, in the United Kingdom rather, they are playing community rugby. We've actually just developed a, a guideline for return to community rugby to help people <laughs> get back into it without this risk of rugby. Yeah. yeah. So the, the wheels are now starting to turn and I think they're turning safely is the message. And it's the, it's the indoor stuff that we still need to be vigilant about, yeah. but not the sport. Well, there we have it. Uh, if you are out there and exercising and being active, you are far less likely to get very seriously ill from COVID. Hopefully you don't get it at all. But if you do, you are less likely to um, suffer any real consequences, just besides a few little exceptional cases. So the message is pretty strong. And uh, for those of you participating in sport, I imagine golf's a pretty safe option as well, unless you go into the clubhouse afterwards, being out there in the, in the open. But uh, if you can avoid the beers in the clubhouse afterwards and just get out there and, and, and do the sport you're doing, you're probably most likely to have more benefit than you have with risk. Mm. And then the, just the one last thing, because I have to punt the vaccine because it's mm. like it is the evidence-based way to go. <laughs> doesn't matter what age you are, that vaccine is going to get us out of this because... Sorry, with, anti-vaxxers. With, no, if, if, if you're an, I'm willing to bet that if you're an anti-vaxxer, you probably don't enjoy this show. <laughs> um, if... That vaccine will bring the risk down to lower than the baseline levels of flu that we've had for the last 10 years. Yeah. So if you were anxious and paranoid about flu in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, you can continue to be. But if you weren't then, you won't in future. Mm. And it's a vaccine that's going to get us out of this. Yeah. So that's that's the key. So then you'll be able to play golf and spend hours in the, in the clubhouse. And see your grandchildren. So, and so all those reasons. And kids, yeah. Play the rugby match, have the drinks in the clubhouse after the game. That's that's the incentive that I think we've got to work towards. Get the shot. Good message, Ross, and uh, thanks very much for that. And uh, for all of you listening, uh, good luck for the rest of the, the week. Uh, we'll be hopefully coming to you far more regularly over the next couple of months. We've got a plan in place to hopefully publish at least every week, maybe every second week if we really push for time. And a big thank you again to all of our Patreon supporters who supported us over the last week and those that continue to support us. But from us for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.